Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Nathan Connolly. We're going to start today's show in California. In 1936, a young man was walking on a hillside above the San Francisco Bay. And he stumbled across this piece of metal sticking out of the ground. This is Peter Hamp, the deputy director at UC Berkeley's Bancroft Library. He says the man who pulled the metal plate out of the dirt didn't think much of it. He had a hole in the bottom of his car, and the plate with metal seemed about the right size to cover the hole. So it was only later, apparently, that he discovered that it had writing on it. He took it to a historian at the Bancroft Library named Herbert Bolton. Bolton had been telling his students for years to keep their eyes out for a piece of metal just like this. It was an almost mythic piece of California history. So what is this, something from, like, the gold rush? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm totally stumped, and now you have to tell us what it is. Well, to Bolton, it was proof that Sir Francis Drake, the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe, had actually landed on the California coast in 1579. Two years before that, the Queen of England had secretly commissioned the British sea captain to attack Spanish colonies in Central and South America. So that's what he did. Drake sailed up and down the Pacific coast, plundering Spanish ports and galleons. He noted in his journals that at one point he put in for repairs somewhere north of Spanish California. He was able to pull into a safe and fit harbor, and he careened the ship there, which I think meant that he put it on its side so that they could scrape the barnacles and recalk the wood and make the thing seaworthy again. He apparently encountered local natives and somehow got the impression that they had ceded to him on behalf of Elizabeth I in England this area that he called Nova Albion, which we would think of in English as New England. Just like an Englishman to get like a plot of land after a pit stop. I'm just saying. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to note that pit stop, Nathan... Before he sailed off again, Drake engraved this English claim to Nova Albion onto a metal plate, and he left it behind. Herbert Bolton, the Berkeley historian, fervently believed that Drake's plate was hidden somewhere along the California coast. It was just waiting to be found. So when the man brought this metal plate to Bolton for authentication, the historian was euphoric. Here was physical proof of Drake's landing, and it was now in Bolton's very hands. This is actually pretty amazing. (laughs) It is amazing. It is amazing. I think once he made out the words, he got rather excited. He said, one of the world's long-lost treasures apparently has been found. Bolton published the news of the plate's discovery and helped make it a national story. It also got picked up by the British press. Drake's name had already been stamped across local landmarks in the Bay Area. Now, the plate became part of local history that was taught in California schools. Hanf says that when he started working at the Bancroft Library in the early 1970s, Drake's plate was one of the university's treasures. It was also popular with the public. School kids from all over the state, when they came to Berkeley, came in to look at it together in groups. And people would trek from all over the world to come and look at Drake's plate. It was just one problem. The plate was a fake. Ooh. (laughs) All through the years, there were arguments, published and not published, that the plate was a forgery. So in the 1970s, officials at the Bancroft Library decided to resolve the controversy and have Drake's plate tested. They discovered that it was machine-made American brass, likely beaten with a hammer and then thrown in a fire to make it look old. 
why in the world would someone do that? You hear the fear in the early Americanist voice there, don't you? Exactly. Eek. <laughs> what do you mean, fake evidence that looks old? Well, Hamp says the leading theory is that some members of a local historical society were trying to pull a prank on their pal Herbert Bolton. Oh, no. Remember, Bolton really wanted proof of this local lore. And when he thought he'd found it, he published his findings before his friends had a chance to tell him that it was a joke. So why did it even matter where Drake landed in the 16th century? Why did certain people want to believe this plate was real? It was something that people had a large amount of passion about. The significance, I think, is that this occurred quite a few years before the arrival of English to the eastern coast, uh, certainly before Jamestown, and then certainly as well uh, quite a few years before the pilgrims arrived in Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, just think about the way that American history usually gets taught, right? I mean, it usually starts with the English showing up somewhere. Either it's Jamestown in 1607, Plymouth Rock in 1620. That leaves places like California, Florida, really most of the country out of that origin story. Unless there's a famous English sea captain who shows up in California 30 years before Jamestown. That's right, Joanne. It's a way of including California in that early part of our national narrative and keeping the British at the center of that narrative. As it turns out, Drake's Landing is a part of local lore in lots of places. Communities up and down the Pacific coast from California all the way up to Alaska have claimed that Drake actually landed in their hometown. He's a busy guy. <laughs> That's amazing. And I had no idea that there was like a George Washington slept here thing happening <laughs> on the other part, <laughs> on the other coast of the country. Hemp says that even after the plate was found to be a forgery, people continued to embrace it as part of local history. There were definitely individuals, even with the evidence before them, that simply would not accept the new evidence. They were sure this was Sir Francis Drake's plate. Strangely enough, more recent evidence suggests Drake did land near San Francisco Bay. But the rush to claim the fake plate as proof shows the power of the stories we tell about our past. The plate was accepted because it reflected a version of history some people wanted to believe. Today on the show, we're diving into some of the stories we tell ourselves about American history and teasing out fact from fiction, because let's face it, there are a lot of stories out there. We'll discuss the myths we hear most often from our students. We'll look at Robert E. Lee, the man, the myth, and the legend, and we'll also investigate whether Davy Crockett actually died defending the Alamo. Over the last few weeks, we've been getting questions from listeners about history they heard about as kids, wanting to know what's real and what's myth. Listener Natanya Pope Sohel in Chicago wondered about someone who looms large in American folklore. He's inspired countless stories, poems, and especially ballads for more than a century. The name of the song is John Henry. This is a recording of a man named Harold B. Hazelhurst. It was made in 1939 by the Works Progress Administration. Hazelhurst had learned the John Henry song when he was a teenager working on the Florida Railroad. Uh, see, the fellows from different railroads would come and work on this track with us, and each fellow, perhaps he'd have a new verse that he'd add to this song. Well, good. Well, now, you, let's hear the way, you, the way you remember it. When they brought John Henry to this country, they brought him through by land. The people came from far and near just to see a steel-driving man. Just to see a steel-driving man. John Henry told his captain that a man ain't nothing but a man. Before I let this hammer out do me, I'll die with the handle in my hand. John Henry, I'll die with the hammer in my hand. John Henry had a little woman. That song lays down the legend of John Henry, the steel-driving man who raced against a modern steam drill to carve out a railroad tunnel. He won, but then immediately collapsed and died. 
It's a classic story of man versus machine. I'm just going to admit it right up top. I didn't know much more about John Henry than what I'd heard in the songs. So after getting in touch with Natanya, we called a historian at the University of Georgia named Scott Reynolds Nelson. He's an expert in all things John Henry. And it turns out that the real story of John Henry is more disturbing and less uplifting than the myth. We'll start with Natanya's first question. So my first question is, was he an actual person? Yes, he was. He was uh, five feet, one and a quarter inches tall. He was born. I think this guy was a giant. uh, A quarter, I'm sure he insisted on. Uh, So he was a very small man, but that's what you needed to uh, build a tunnel. To make a tunnel in the 1860s and 1870s, you needed a hammer man who was small. The arc of his swing had to be small enough so that he could go deep into that tunnel. Hey, Natanya, can I squeeze a question in here? Of course. It's your show. So was he and uh, the guys he were working with, were they actually racing against another team that was using a steam drill? Yes, that would have been around September or October of 1871, according to the construction reports. Uh, The steam drills were there. They were being used to try to drill um, these little holes for the explosives. But there are actual reports at the time saying that, that the drillers are drilling alongside the steam drills and the steam drills are failing. Okay, let me check in with Natanya. Are you believing this so far, Natanya? (laughs) I am. I do find it believable. But I'm wondering, was he, in the context of the Ava DuVernay documentary 13, about the constitutional loophole that allows for enslavement of prisoners, was John Henry caught up in one of the first waves waves of post-Civil War mass incarceration of African-American men? Uh, yes, he was. Um, what happened? Uh, this is this is very early in 1865. Andrew Johnson is president. He allows the Virginia state to kind of reconstitute itself as a state, and they they take all of these minor misdemeanors and turn them into felonies. And what you see is mass incarceration of African American, mostly men, and three fourths of the men in the Virginia penitentiary in 1864 are white. By 1869. Uh, 80% of the men in the Virginia penitentiary are black. That's really remarkable. Yeah. You get basically a labor force that is a critical labor force that allows Virginia, um, the Virginia railroads to to penetrate uh, the mountains and connect to Western Virginia. Uh, they tried to use miners, black and white miners, to do this work, but they went on strike uh, around 1870. said there was bad air in the mountain, and that's when they brought in convicts to finish the work. John Henry and uh, about 100 to 200 other folks were shipped up to do the, the final stages of this construction work. Right. What led you to believe that John Henry was actually a real person, Scott? I didn't think he was a real person. I thought he was I thought he was a legend and I was listening to a version of the song that said uh, looking at a picture of the Virginia penitentiary and the song says they took John Henry to the White House and buried him in the sand. Every locomotive comes roaring by says there lies a steel-driving man. And next to the Virginia penitentiary, buried in layers of sand in 1995, they found 200 bodies and they were all mostly black men between the ages of 18 and 25. So using that, I got access to the Virginia Penitentiary records. They show John Henry being arrested for a crime that he probably didn't commit. He's listed as stealing goods worth uh, $200 from a grocery store. But you look at the inventory of the grocery store, there's nothing worth $200. He finally ends up in the Virginia Penitentiary in 1868, but he'll die uh, by 1871 uh, working on the tunnels at the Lewis Tunnel right at the edge of um, the border between Virginia and West Virginia on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. So what is it about this story, Scott, that made it so compelling to become a myth? I mean, what makes for a myth? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I think part of it is that a steam drill in 1871 was a terribly uh, difficult instrument. It was really bulky. It was really slow. The power was transmitted pneumatically. Um, any two of us, you and I, Brian, could have defeated a steam drill in 1871. But by 1880, when the song starts to be transmitted, steam drills are so powerful and so they work so well that no human could defeat a steam drill. And so that's when it becomes – it enters a level of myth. But what killed most of the prisoners on the uh, work site was not exactly the steam drill. It was was actually the explosives that were creating this rock dust. People inhaled it, um, little tiny bits of crystalline rock. They cut up your lungs, and you basically your lungs fill up with fluid and you die. And this is how he 
and most of the other workers who were doing this construction died. This rock dust from uh, very, very hard rock. Um, people inhale it, and it kills them. Right. So, Natanya, should we let this guy keep going? I mean, he's convinced <laughs> me so far. You got any more for him? I have just one more question. Mm-hmm. So, John Henry is considered a hero in American folklore, and I believe that mm. he's a hero. Um, but we don't usually consider people in the prison system as heroes. So I'm wondering, is there a bit of revisionist history at play or is his story part of the natural evolution of folklore that tends to leave out the sticky parts as time Mm, passes? mm, mm, That's a great question. I think it is. It's a a part of it is is this evolution of the sticky parts. I think one of the amazing things about African-American art and literature and music is that it can take the most terrible crimes and turn them into the most beautiful literature and music that we have. And so this is a way, the story of John Henry is really a story about a terrible crime. It's about men who are buried unremembered, without gravestones, in the Virginia penitentiary, forgotten. And the song is really about saying, here are the men. They're buried at the White House. So it's a story that that takes a terrible crime, but over time, as men and women carry the song forward and convert it and change it, they turn it into this beautiful song. It goes from a dirge to really the beginnings of blues and uh, what we now call rock and roll. Natanya, you made the mistake of telling me something about yourself while we were waiting for Scott. Mm -hmm. You're in law school? Yes, I am. Is that what piqued your interest in this? Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, no. I also homeschool my kids, and we got to the unit on folktales. And so I was trying to find something that I thought that they could relate to. What's your takeaway? What are you going to, how old are your kids? My youngest is nine. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess my takeaway is that history is just interconnected, you know, especially Mm. with folktales. It's not always what we see. There's always a backstory. There's always an undercurrent. You know how you have subjects that you constantly think about, like throughout time, you know, you come back to them, you think about certain things. John Henry has always been that for me. And I feel like a lot of my questions about who he was and why he was um, and why he is such a, a huge figure in folklore has been answered. And I'm, I'm really glad that we had this conversation. Thanks to our listener, Natanya Pope Sohel, for her questions. Thanks also to Scott Reynolds Nelson for helping us answer them. He's an historian at the University of Georgia and author of Steel Drive-In Man, John Henry, The Untold Story of an American Legend. It's time to take a short break. When we return, the myths that turned Robert E. Lee from a rebel general into healer of a nation. We're going to turn now to the myths surrounding a historical figure who's been in the news a lot lately. Should we be removing Robert E. Lee from public vision? Today, the city of New Orleans will take down a statue of Robert E. Lee. Dozens of Ku Klux Klan members rallying against the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, Virginia, yesterday. But the Klan members... We'll start at the KKK rally here in Charlottesville in early July. We asked people in town that day, what do you think of when you think of Robert E. Lee? Hero. You know, I mean, he's just a hero. The definition of an American, one of the greatest generals that there ever was. He was a failed general. Um, If you don't win, you don't win. I don't think people quite understand just how racist the man was. I I just hear racism all the time, you know. He was on the wrong side, but that doesn't make him a horrible person. I don't think that Robert E. Lee himself necessarily thought the cause was worth fighting for, but ended up fighting for it because Virginia was his home. He wasn't about slavery. He he was about, did he own slaves? Yes. It's never proven that he owned slaves. Robert E. Lee thought that it would have been a good idea for the Confederacy to outlaw slavery. Those all sound very familiar, Brian. There's a Groundhog Day tone to this. <laughs> this is Gary Gallagher, a historian at the University of Virginia. We asked Gary to help us sort out some of the myths he heard among those voices. Well, I think that the two 
most prominent myths about Lee are both represented in those comments. The first is that he, he's all about Virginia. All you need to know about Robert E. Lee is that he was a Virginian, considering himself a Virginian, and you can explain his life pretty much entirely based on his devotion to Virginia. The second one is that he either didn't own any slaves at all or owned very few and wanted to get rid of them as sort of a closet emancipationist. Those are two, uh, I think those are the two most common myths about Lee. Before we go any further, let's review what's called the lost cause of the Confederacy. It comes up a lot in our conversations about the Civil War. Gallagher says white Southerners began constructing the narrative of the lost cause in the ashes of the war between the states. So they're trying to figure out how to hold their heads up in the wake of a catastrophic defeat that cost them the thing they most wanted to protect, which was their slaveholding society. How do we explain this to our children and grandchildren? And by the way, we lost almost a third of our military-aged white males killed. Well, first... We never could have won. So there's no loss of honor in fighting a fight you never could have won against Yankees who had too much of everything. Second, it wasn't about slavery. It was about high constitutional principle. So it was a noble fight in a cause. Even though we couldn't win, it was worth fighting. And look at Robert E. Lee if you want to see what kind of a cause we had. He's central to the lost cause. As the archetypal Southern gentleman, Lee became the noble face of the lost cause. Gallagher says that many of the myths swirling around Robert E. Lee were constructed by taking tiny truths and distorting them. Remember those voices we heard a moment ago claiming Lee didn't support slavery and maybe never even owned slaves at all? Lee did own a few slaves in his life. He inherited uh, some from his mother, but he never owned very many slaves. He never had very much money. His only source of money through most of his life was his salary as an officer in the United States Army, which didn't make anyone wealthy. But he married into a, in, into the Custis family, and his father-in-law owned a huge number of slaves. He was one of the largest slaveholders in Virginia. So although he didn't own a lot of slaves, he still has to be reckoned a part of the slaveholding uh, elite of the of the antebellum South. There's one statement he made in 1856 where he said, everybody knows slavery is wrong. And I, I think he meant that in a sort of Jeffersonian sense that the slavery in the long term will probably go. But then he very quickly said, but nobody should do anything to get rid of it. God will get rid of it in his own time. In other words, he, he isn't in a hurry to give black men the vote. He doesn't think black people are equal to white people. And he's not the Lone Ranger in that regard. And what about the claim that Lee's true allegiance was to Virginia and not the Confederacy? Again, Gallagher says that's true up to a point. I think Lee faced a very difficult decision in leaving the United States Army in 1861. He'd just been promoted to colonel. That had been his entire life's work. But in the end, and I don't see any reason not to take him at his word here, he didn't believe that he could fight against his family and his state. But once he got into a Confederate uniform, he became an absolutely staunch Confederate nationalist. And if it had ever been a case of Virginia needs A, the Confederacy needs B, he would have said, we're going to do B because Virginia is a subset of the Confederacy. And the Confederacy in the long term will protect the things we consider most important, including our slaveholding social structure. So I asked Gallagher. If you can't separate Robert E. Lee from the Confederacy and slavery, how did he become a national hero? I think initially, the the former Confederates who decided to focus on Lee had very good material in Lee because he, they, they argued they fought against long odds. Lee did fight against long odds. He won famous victories against long odds. He's not, he's a soldier, not a politician. So you can talk about Lee without talking about slavery. He's a good uh-huh. loser. Uh, the, the winners set the terms, accept the terms and go forward. Don't wallow in the past. He was against, for example, erecting monuments uh, to, to the Confederacy. He thought that wasn't productive. So go forward. <laughs> Except, and he Is applied. that how he ended up with so many monuments? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a very monumented fellow. That's the public Lee. That public uh, persona of Lee was consistently reconciliationist. Yes it, yes, it, yes, it was. It was consistently reconciliationist in a public sense. But after the war, and I should be more specific, after Lee died, he wouldn't have countenanced this when he was alive, actually. But after he died, they not only the, the Lost Cause people began to 
present him not only as a great soldier, but as kind of a perfect soldier. And they tried to uh, explain away all of his deficiencies as a general, explain away his defeats at Gettysburg and elsewhere, find other people to blame. So he became this kind of a perfect model of the best that the antebellum Southern slaveholding society could produce. Let's look at Lee. I get why Lee works for the South, but why does he work for the North as well? Over time, he comes to work for the North because it's the it's and that is where the reconciliationist thread becomes more important. I mean, the point of the war, after all, for the vast majority of the white citizenry of the United States was to restore the Union. The, the restoration of the Union was the most important goal in 1861. It was the most important goal in 1865. Most white Northerners also accepted emancipation in the end as one of the tools that would be necessary to restore the Union. But if the point is to put the Union together, then you try to find ways to see that that restored Union works. And bringing Lee into the tent, so to speak, is one way to do that. And it began pretty early. A lot of the obituaries in Northern newspapers— he died in 1870. Uh, a lot of those obituaries were quite favorable in many ways. Uh, Frederick Douglass called them nauseating flatteries of Robert E. Lee. He was very <laughs> upset with how quickly this started. It gained steam later in the 19th century. And by the early 20th century, uh, he was he had been elevated to a position where he could be admired. If, if, as long as you don't talk about slavery and as long as you don't talk about who was right or wrong so much in the war— then you can kind of bring Lee into it. And so he becomes, he's not only part of the lost cause stream of memory, he's also part of the reconciliationist stream of memory by the early 20th century. And in fact, the statue in Charlottesville, the equestrian statue of Lee is a perfect example of that. It went up in 1924, which is one year before Congress uh, passed legislation making Arlington a national memorial to Robert E. Lee and putting Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson on a 50-cent piece minted by the United States Mint, not by some vanity mint, by the United States Mint. Uh, Gary, you've, you've mentioned one thing that is left out of the current debates, let's say in Charlottesville, over removing the statue of Robert E. Lee. You, you talked about how uh, Lee was embraced by the North, even put on coins for the U.S. Mint by he's, the 1920s. He, he's been on what five else? postage stamps, Brian. He's been on five, five United States. Well, I would love to know, and I've often said this and no one has ever given me a name, I'd love to know any other principal rebel leader in a major civil war who ended up with a national memorial to him and his visage on postage stamps and coins. I would love to know if there's another example We will of that. send that out to our listeners. They're very attentive, so good. we'll get some good answers. So it's, I've watched this debate in, in Charlottesville with interest. It's, to, to say that that's just a lost cause statue really isn't right because it's part of a much broader reconciliationist movement by the mid-1920s. And this is really important to understand because if we don't understand the difference between history and memory, we're not going to understand very much about the past. So how do we go about correcting myths? How do we do that with Robert E. Lee? I'm not hopeless about whether people can get a better understanding of our past because I've seen many people get it. I've had many gratifying notes and emails and conversations, not only with students, but also with teachers. I, I work with groups of teachers every year who say that they're really looking at things in a different way. On the other hand, I've had students come up at the end of a semester and say, I loved your class. I just thought it was the greatest thing, but you're wrong. The Civil War wasn't about slavery. Uh, and my uncle George knows that, and I do too. So I realize that you're not going to reach Everybody, if I can get students to take one thing away from a history course, I want them to take two. I want them to understand the difference between history and memory, and all of this Confederate memorialization stuff is perfect for that. And the other one is anyone who wants simple answers, just give me the, what is it? Is it black or is it white? Well, it's almost never black or white. It's never simple. It's never easy. And if we can convey some sense of that to people so they don't jump as a result of their impulse to have a nice, pat, easy, soundbite, 24-hour news station answer for something, then I think we really have accomplished something.
Gary Gallagher is a historian at the University of Virginia and director of the NOW Center for Civil War History. Nathan, Joanne, we spend a lot of time in the classroom, and I'm sure, as I do, you come up against a lot of myths. We've heard these myths built around individuals, Robert E. Lee. But what are the real macro myths? I'm going to put one on the table we could come back to or not later. My students really believe in the story of progress in the United States. History is a Mm -hmm. never-ending series of things getting better. Try to top that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I see your myth of progress, and it's compelling. (laughs) But I want to raise you an even more compelling myth, I think, which gets to an even more fundamental place in our own vocations, which is the myth of information. Education is the key. If you simply give people enough to change their hearts and minds, and all of our social ills oh. will basically go away, right? Yep. And yet we see time and time again. It's a lot harder than that. I'm impressed, Nathan. You win. Wait, oh, if, if there's a third player I gotta get the in the table. game. I got to get in the game. Okay. Okay. What do you got, Joy? I would say, certainly in the classroom, that the biggest myth, and in a sense this is not going to be surprising, is the idea of the founders, right? Mm. All capital letters, Uh. that there's this group of people who came up with brilliant ideas by themselves and together sort of marched into a room and wrote it down on paper and ah, there we had the American experiment. And that's, you know, that's it. That's America. And, And when I teach the founding, a lot of what I'm doing is unraveling this sense of inevitability and unraveling the sense of superhuman capabilities and unraveling the sense of unity, right? I actually think thinking about um, the founders as this unified group of guys who all absolutely agreed does right. more damage than good, right? That, that Which suggests somehow that, that either you're all supposed to agree or that somehow disagreement is wrong. So I think I think the founding is vital for a lot of different reasons for people. And I think obviously the way you think about the beginning is going to affect the way you think about the here and now. Well, that, well, that's the thing about about myths, though, right? I mean, they're supposed to both explain and conceal. So if we can explain mm. why the Constitution has had relatively few amendments when compared to other documents on the world stage, we have to attribute that to the genius of the founders, right? The magical, right? yes. The magical document. Yes. But at the same time, that narrative conceals all of the debates at that time and certainly the debates in the subsequent, you know, centuries about, you know, what it meant to maintain the power of the planter class, maintain right. the power of white men in the political culture, maintain, you know, the ge- geographic boundaries of the country and the displacement right. that went along there with it, the wealth of the country. And that's a wealth generated by slavery, to, to be very clear, right? I mean, all of that has to kind of fall under this shadow of the great architects of, of the republic. Right. And I think, yeah, right. that's critical. Any Any form of exclusion gets excluded from our Mm. history with that kind of an outlook. Well, Nathan, I hear a lot of ideas behind (laughs) Joanne's entry into the uh, mythathon. Why aren't ideas enough? It has to ring true in your ear for you to believe it. We have, for instance, this notion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, oftentimes played on repeat as having done such amazing kind of cognitive work in the American mind about the evils of segregation, the evils of racism, the right of people to have kind of equal rights. And it is absolutely not the case that that speech changed the way that Americans thought about their country, right? It took another decade at least for there to be any real breakthroughs in terms of black political representation. And so, you know, it's important for us to kind of have as our kind of narrative mythology that, you know, a kind of great speech on the steps of a great monument or all the country kind of needs to turn the page on the worst parts of its history. But it it also takes a, a very clear commitment from tons of people, often faceless people, to make any progress at all. And I think we all need, in some ways, to believe that we're moving forward, that we're part of a collective progress that is going to leave our kids better off than we are. 
And mm-hmm. this notion of history progressing uh, is a very powerful source of that belief. I urge my students to think about progress for who, or if they're mm. British, progress mm. for whom. <laughs> and that immediately gets them thinking, well, yes, uh, certain technological changes, for instance, helped elite white men, but put a lot of lower middle class men out of work if we're talking about industrialization, sure. for instance. So one of the interesting things about the founders um, is that some of them lived long enough to realize that they were kind of becoming the founders. Oh, what <laughs> they, right. they did begin to get letters from Americans sort of with a, an awestruck, you know, tell us how it was when X, wow. Y, and Z happened. And there's an amazing letter from John Adams uh, in reference to one of these. He's responding to one of these um, requests that basically says, tell us what it was like when you wrote the Declaration of Independence. What was it like? And Adams says, okay, let me tell you what it was like. Here's what it was like. I sat and I watched everybody go up and sign that document. And you know what I saw? People who didn't want to sign it, people who were scared of signing it, people who really had, had to be kind of shoved up there to sign it. He was showing that from that moment, in a sense of inception, there was no great, wonderful unity. There were people in that room who weren't all that excited about declaring independence. Right. So here's what unites, I think, all three of our, our myth moments mm. here. All three of us have talked about myths that essentially erase work. Mm-hmm. Right, erase all of the effort, erase all of the the you know the real life aspect of it in a very concrete kind of a way. So it's not just a myth. And all of it's... the controversies and right. battles and conflicts, yes. as your yes. example shows, Joanne. So here's the thing. I mean, and this is particularly true of the founding. What's fascinating about it is the struggle of it and the humanity of it mm-hmm. and the messiness of it and all of the ways in which wrong decisions were made. That's so much more interesting than some glossy little shiny myth that has a bunch of perfect people coming up with a perfect little document. I, you know, mm. I feel like when I talk about the founding to the public, in essence, that's what I keep saying over and over again, is the truth is so much more interesting and so much has so much more to tell us than a myth does. We're going to close the show with a historical mystery brought to us by another listener. My name is Mark Maidley. I'm from Houston, Texas. Maidley asked us about the circumstances surrounding Davy Crockett's death at the Alamo. Crockett was one of about 200 who defended the San Antonio mission from Mexican leader Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana and his army in 1836. Up against what most considered overwhelming odds, the legendary frontiersman and his fellow soldiers all died in battle. According to state lore, the heroic sacrifice fed the fires of the Texas Revolution and led to the region's eventual independence from Mexico. But Maidley wanted to know about another version of this story, one that claims that Crockett didn't die on the ramparts. Rather, that he was taken prisoner and executed by Santa Ana's men after the battle. Maidley objected to this version of the story. I mean, the Alamo is, well, we're told to remember it, right? <laughs> Especially as Texans. I think for, for me, with regards to, uh, to what happened to Crockett or what happened to all those men there, uh, to find out that, you know, this story of all these guys being, you know, dying at the Alamo in battle uh, to not be true, I'm sure it's disturbing to some people, a little bit to me, that there were guys left over. And so to, to imagine that things might not have gone the way we want them to go means, you know, letting go of something that's very important in the way we look at the world. Okay, so... What really happened? Did Davy Crockett die defending the Alamo or not? And I guess maybe even more important, why does it matter? We put backstory producer Nina Ernest on the case. To understand how Davy Crockett died, we first have to know more about how David Crockett lived. Not the Davy from the Walt Disney TV show of the 1950s. You know, the one dressed head to toe in buckskins, toting a rifle, and wearing a coonskin cap. I mean the real David Crockett the man who launched a thousand myths. So was he born on a mountaintop in Tennessee? Did he kill a bear when he was only three? Or I guess he says bar, right? Killed me a bar. <laughs> yeah, said bar. Well, that's what the song says. Killed him a bar when he was only three. 
This is historian Andrew Torgett. <laughs> I don't think he was born on a mountaintop, but he definitely was born in the woods, on the frontier, in a lot of poverty. After a series of odd jobs from hunter to gristmill operator, Crockett made a name for himself in local politics. But what gave him a national prominence was when he was elected to the United States Congress in 1827. And when he went there, he was a part of this, this movement toward embracing the everyman. In some ways, Crockett owed his popularity to another so-called hardscrabble man from Tennessee, Andrew Jackson. Both men portrayed themselves as champions of the poor white man. But Torgett says that's where the similarities end. The reality was Andrew Jackson was actually quite wealthy and had a lot of great advantages. Crockett truly was the everyman. He truly was that poor guy. Davy Crockett, as he became known, was the true eccentric. He was the true representative of the wildness of the West. And Crockett played that up. He made sure not to blend in in the nation's capital and quickly became the talk of the town. He would often walk around Washington wearing, you know, his buckskins and what became kind of a costume for him, the sort of hunting gear that he would wear on the Western frontier. And this was, you know, a sort of, say, shocking sort of thing, but it gave him attention on a public scale that he couldn't create on his own by any means. Torgett says Crockett knew that his carefully crafted image could also invite ridicule. And he had this problem where he wanted to be taken seriously, but he also knew that the caricature of him and who his life was was part of the power that he couldn't escape as well. And he had to try to balance those two things to be taken seriously enough to do things that he was interested in doing, like helping poor folks from his district in Tennessee. But Crockett wasn't the only one capitalizing on his popularity. He was irresistible for writers and journalists who published outlandish tales about him. A hit 1831 play called The Lion of the West further, well, lionized him. Its main character, Nimrod Wildfire, was clearly modeled on Crockett. Because he seemed to be this wonderful character that could be used to represent so much about the American experiment moving westward, about the expanding United States, and about the power of this rugged individual frontiersman that was becoming a part of how the United States was beginning to think about itself in the 1820s and 30s as the country really starts expanding westward very rapidly. Unfortunately, his celebrity didn't translate into political success. During his three terms in Congress, most of the legislation he supported didn't pass. He also made a powerful political enemy in President Andrew Jackson, especially when he opposed the removal of Native Americans from the East. In 1835, Crockett lost his re-election bid. Stung by this defeat, the living legend decided to leave Tennessee behind. The story goes that he told his constituents, you all may go to hell, and I will go to Texas. And the question is, why? Why is Crockett going to Texas? He went to Texas because lots of people were going to Texas to see what kind of new life they could make for themselves. This is historian James Crisp. These were guys looking for a second chance because all of them had failed in their lives in the United States. And it's true of Crockett. Texas, then a part of Mexico, was in a state of political upheaval. Anglo settlers had been streaming into the territory for more than a decade. When Crockett arrived in early 1836, both Anglos and Tejanos, native Texans of Mexican descent, were rebelling against the Mexican government. Some kind of clash seemed imminent. Crockett enlisted in the Texas militia as a private, never mind that he was 49 years old. Torgett says he probably hoped to revive his political career, this time as a Texan. And so when Crockett goes to San Antonio, it's probably to build up support to getting himself elected in whatever this new Texas government is, to do a tour of the area. But it, it certainly isn't to get into a fight at the Alamo because absolutely nobody saw that coming. On February 23, 1836, Mexican troops led by Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana suddenly appeared outside San Antonio. 
pandemonium just hits the streets of the town. They start ringing the bell, the San Fernando church. Everybody starts panicking, and there's just this general retreat into the Alamo complex, which was on the far western edge of San Antonio at the time, because there was really no other place to go. The walls didn't even go all the way around. They had to put sharp sticks in, into the ground just to have protection all the way around, and it wasn't all that much protection. And so Crockett and his men retreated into the Alamo with all the Texas soldiers and a lot of people in town who were just seeking refuge and someplace to hide while they saw whatever happened next. What happened next was that the Mexican army laid siege to the makeshift fortress. By the time the battle ended 13 days later, all of the Alamo's defenders, including Davy Crockett, had been killed. When Crockett was killed at the Alamo, that was big news because Crockett was big news. But trying to figure out how he died there has never been easy. Crisp says that in the weeks following the siege, the local papers printed two competing narratives. You've got the story of Davy Crockett fighting like a tiger until the very end. And the other version, saying that Crockett and several others were taken captive and executed by Santa Ana after the battle. This scenario is backed up by a famous memoir. Written by a Mexican captain, José Enrique de la Peña. Which describes the scene of Crockett's execution. De la Peña says that seven prisoners were brought to Santa Ana. One of them, he writes, was the naturalist David Crockett, well-known in North America for his unusual adventures. De la Peña adds that Crockett and the others were stabbed to death by Santa Ana's men. But in 1994, writer and New York firefighter William Groneman, and lifelong Davy Crockett fan, claimed there were inconsistencies in the De La Pena account. It always bothered me that how this Mexican officer, who had never been to the United States, was only in Texas for the first time. Crockett had only been in Texas two months before the Alamo fell. How would he have known on site Davy Crockett? The more he looked into it, the more Groneman's doubts grew. For example, he says that De La Pena's memoir wasn't even discovered until 1955, and he's convinced it's a fake or perhaps a forgery. So I made that fact known back in the early 1990s, and it started a big controversy that's still going on today. And one of the reasons it exploded into controversy is because I was asked to review Bill Groneman's book. This is historian James Crisp again. And unfortunately, his argument didn't close. His, he hadn't proved his point. Crisp says De La Pena's was one of three eyewitness accounts to the execution. And he did his own research and concluded that the memoir was authentic. So it's likely that Crockett did die after the battle. This caused an uproar among Alamo aficionados, including one woman on the streets of San Antonio who told him. If I had my Bowie knife, I would gut you right now because hanging is too good for you. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Have you actually read what I wrote? And she said, no, I'm just a Crockett loyalist. Since then, Crisp and Groneman have been the key figures in the how did Davy die debate. Crisp is pretty sure he was executed. Groneman thinks the answer is unknowable. And there's only one thing that would change his mind. Somebody inventing a time machine and going back to the Battle of the Alamo and actually see what happened. There's no way to know. You can't verify any of these things. In other words, the Crisp and Groneman camps will never see eye to eye. To me, this seems like a historical dispute that obscures a larger point. Can we know how he died? Not with 100% certainty. But whichever side of the debate you fall on, it's pretty clear that yes, Davy Crockett did die defending the Alamo. Even if he was executed afterward, he still lost his life fighting a losing battle. The bigger question is, why do we care? I don't really think it does matter, but it began to matter, like I say, a few years back when all the spin in the media was, was put on that if he was executed, that meant he surrendered. That meant he gave up after encouraging everyone else to fight to the death. 
And that meant he was a coward. Because allowing yourself to be taken captive has a lot of wrinkles to it, a lot of layers to it. And when I argued that Crockett had actually been executed, people were calling me up and some of them were kind of asking legitimate questions, but many of them were saying, as one British guy did, would you say that Crockett was a coward? And I would say, no. On this point, the two men actually agree. You know, if if Crockett had been executed, it doesn't take away from a whole life uh, of uh, good service to other people. But that fine difference clearly matters to a lot of people, including the woman who threatened to gut James Crisp with a Bowie knife. Andrew Torgett says it's no accident that Crockett resurfaced as a pop culture icon during the Cold War, both in the Walt Disney series and in the John Wayne film The Alamo. One movie is worth 100,000 academic books in terms of how the public thinks about stuff. And so the story about the Alamo today really is that there's this group of men who believe so strongly in freedom and liberty and independence that they knew they were going to die. But it was more important to stand up for those ideals that if Crockett then is seen to surrender after these new pieces of evidence come out, that seems to take away somehow from that idea. It doesn't have the same kind of punch that people who grew up in the 50s and 60s and even 70s and 80s would have had from the idea of the Crockett story, which is about no surrender, no matter how terrible the odds. Both in his own time and in his mythic afterlife, Davy Crockett has reflected how Americans want to see themselves. Backstory producer Nina Ernest brought us that story. We also heard from Andrew Torgett, a historian at the University of North Texas and author of Seeds of Empire, Cotton, Slavery, and the Transformation of the Texas Borderlands, 1800 to 1850. James Crisp is a historian at North Carolina State University and the author of Sleuthing the Alamo, Davy Crockett's Last Stand, and Other Mysteries of the Texas Revolution. William Groneman is author of Eyewitness to the Alamo. That's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Robin Blue. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in our show came from Poddington Bear, Ketza, and Jazar. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins University studio in Baltimore. And special thanks this week to Jamal Milner, who played the version of John Henry you heard after our story. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.